Hello, everyone. Thank you again for joining Dorsey Ross on this episode of The Dorsey Ross Show. In this episode, Dorsey interviews another special guest that will give you hope and inspire you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining me on another episode of the Dorsey Ross Podcast. Today we have Scott Mader, and in 2017, Scott and his wife, Carrie, started Inspired Stewardship as a business to serve Christian men and couples that are struggling to live out their calling. They work to help online the way you use your time, your talent, and your treasures so that you can identify and live a fully authentic life that allows you to authentically live your calling, serve others, and provide for your family. Scott, we thank you for coming on the show today. Absolutely, Dorsey. I'm looking forward to being here and, and seeing what we can do to add some value to your listeners. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming. And so my my first question is, what is it exactly that you do? So I'm a coach. Uh, at the end of the day, what that means, I mean, if you want to translate that into English, is I help other people hit their goals by helping them figure out what those goals are and then align what they're doing and what they're doing from a money perspective, from a time perspective, with their values, with their priorities, and with their goals so that they can actually achieve them and go do whatever it is that they feel that God is calling them to do. Uh, So my joke is I tell people, I coach people around time and money so that they'll hire me so that I can actually... coach them on the third topic that I talk about, which is talent, which is your mindset, your beliefs, your leadership. Because at the end of the day, the way you handle your time and money really has to do with how you handle yourself. Right. How is it that you got started doing this and that you created Inspired Stewardship? So I started it in part by accident. Uh, So I was a school teacher for 16 years. And as a teacher, Of course, I did a lot of what I now know is really coaching skills. I just didn't call them coaching skills then. And I did that for 16 years. I left teaching and I went into a corporate job. I did that for 11 years and very quickly moved up into senior leadership where I was running a team of people that then ran a team of people. So I had leaders reporting to me. Uh, So I was kind of, you know, in that development phase where my real job I couldn't directly affect the team and what they were doing, but I could develop the leaders. So again, I got into a lot of coaching and doing a lot of working with people on on skills and mindset and beliefs and training and all of this, flying all over the country, doing lots of presentations, talking to lots of different people. And in the meantime, uh, I, my wife and I went through a journey and it actually started with getting out of debt. But in my work life, I took a job you know, in the senior leadership position where the expectation is you would work 60 to 80 hours a week. I didn't want to do that. So I also started developing my skills around my time so that I could get every bit of the work done that I needed to get done, do as much or more than anyone else in that position, but actually go home and spend time with my wife and my child and other things at the end of the day. So simultaneously, we were working on money and we were working on time. And as I did that, I began to discover that other people would start asking me questions. How are you doing that? What's working for you? And I began to coach people, not just at work, but also on the side. And so very quickly, that turned into the idea for a coaching business. We started doing it as a part-time job while I was still working in corporate. And then in 2017, we transferred that to be our full-time 
job as well. Gotcha. Now, you know, when you hear the word calling, especially when it's in the Christian realm or Christian cliche, we sometimes think of the word calling as someone being called into the ministry. And when you use the word calling in your job and in your business, what do you mean when you use the word calling? Is that just for people in the ministry or is that just for anybody, you know, what God wants them to do? So I fully believe that calling is not, has nothing to do with being called into the ministry. I mean, that absolutely can be a calling that you have, but those are not synonymous. Calling, it doesn't even mean your career or your job or what you do for a living. Calling has to do inherently with those skill sets, those beliefs, those values, the things that God has put into you and said, this is what you're made to do. This is what you're designed to do. This is how you can live out your authentic self into the world, how you can serve others. That may turn into something that's a business, that may turn into something that is a call into the ministry, that may call into something that's around volunteer work or being a parent or being a spouse. You know, there's all sorts of ways your calling can be expressed. I don't think it's ever expressed in one way or even in one component of your life. Instead, it's about coming back to that core message of where do you find your authentic self And then how do you help that to show up in the world for other people? And when you find ways to do that, oftentimes you'll discover it'll show up in your career. It'll show up at home. It'll show up in volunteer work that you do. It'll show up in your church environment. It'll show up wherever. But so it's not necessarily tied to just what you do as much as it's tied to how you do it. Right. And how do you help someone identify their calling? You ask a lot of questions. That's really it. I mean, that that sounds overly simplistic, but the truth is most of us know what it is that brings us authenticity, that brings us joy, that, you know, when we're doing it, we feel like we're ourselves. When we're saying it, it, it feels like it's an alignment. The problem is that we have a tendency to bury that. We have a tendency to ignore it and put it deep inside ourselves because maybe someone's told us in the past, you know, you can't do that. You'll never make a living doing X, Y, Z, or that's not really something that you're able to do. And so we begin to instill these limiting beliefs in ourselves and we never really live it out. So I do an exercise that I call a combination of what I call a dream document and a life map. So a life map is looking backwards in time. It's looking at what have you done in the past? What did you used to dream about? What did you used to think about? Where have you done things that you really loved? Where have you done things that you didn't love? You know, where, where has your authentic self showed up even a little bit in the past? And then the dream doc is kind of the opposite. It's about looking forward where we walk through questions and we think about where do you want to go? What's your dream? You know, if I took away all the barriers, if you time and money and all of these things weren't in existence and I gave you a magic wand and I said, what would you like your life to look like in five years? Well, what would it look like? And then between those two, we begin to bubble out of that. What is your authentic self? What are the things that you really feel most called to do? 
And then you go experiment with those things. And sometimes, by the way, you learn, eh, nope, didn't quite get it yet. You know, let me tweak it a little bit. Other times it clicks and it's like, this is it. This is what I was put on the earth to do. And now let me go figure out a way to do that. And so that's really the process. It's a combination of looking back, looking forward, and then digging in and then experimenting to see, have we got it yet? You know, is it right yet? And what can we do to keep tweaking it and making it more right? Yeah. How do you help someone transition from working to living their calling? So for a lot of folks, that is part of the process. Now, it isn't always, but for a lot of folks, they're doing a nine to five or they're doing a job that they may not really love. They may not really think is, you know, this is just, it's just a paycheck. It's not really something I feel authentic or in full alignment with my values and my personality and what I do and all of that. And when that happens, you know, 85, I think there's a survey that says something like 75, 85% of people say that they are disengaged from their job. They don't really feel like their job is something that they should be doing. And so when you have that situation, of course, they're not happy. You know, the person doing the job's not happy. The employer's not happy because the person's not doing the job to the fullness of their ability. So what we start to do is figure out what is the thing that you need to do to get to be able to do what you really want to do. So for a lot of folks, that comes down to first getting their money in order, because a lot of times what's keeping us in a, quote, bad day job, air quotes around that, a lot of times, by the way, it's not really that it's a bad job. It's just not the right job for you is the fact that we've got bills to pay. You know, you've got a house payment, you've got kids, you've got, you know, you got to eat, all of these things. And so it's digging in and doing the hard work and making some sacrifices to get the money in order first. That's one of the reasons I, t- I coach on money and budgets and finance and all of these things. And then once you've got that in order, a lot of times then it's making a transition plan. How do I start something on the side, experiment, prove to myself that it will work so that now when I do make the leap, I've got the confidence to do it and without worry because you know my money's taken care of, my other commitments are taken care of, I've seen that it'll work. And now I could go all in with it. So it's usually not about jumping off the cliff as much as it is first building a parachute. And now we'll jump off the cliff, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, this is, you know, transitioning into what you were talking about before in the last question. How do you transition from a job that you hate to a calling that you love? Yeah, the answer is gradual. You know, you don't usually do that by walking out the door. For one thing, when you're in a position that you hate, and and I kind of touched on this in the the last question, but let me dig a little deeper. One thing that we have to think about is why do you actually hate that job? Because a lot of times what I've discovered is sometimes what people actually hate isn't the job. What they hate is something that's inside them in a way meaning that they're doing something or saying something that's not in alignment with who they are. So sometimes we can get that in alignment, but this is why when people will often just job hop, you know, they'll they'll leave this job because they hate their job, they hate their boss, they hate everything about it, and they go to another job and then they hate it too. And the part of the problem is because everywhere you go, you're there. And if there's something that you haven't dug out in yourself to figure out what is it you really want to be in alignment with, then going to something else means you just carry those problems with you and they just repeat themselves. And 
that's why we have to do this hard work on identifying, you know, both our limiting beliefs, what's holding us back, our relationship with ourselves, and how do is our mindset affecting us? And then after you've done that hard work, now it's really easy to make the transition because now you can start designing whether that's running your own business, whether that's working for someone else, doesn't matter. I can start looking for and designing what are the real things I'm looking for that begin to get an alignment with who I am. No job, no nothing is ever perfect in alignment with your calling in all fact segments of your life and all facets of your life. Instead, you're looking for things that you can tie together to get you know, so that your overall life is in alignment with what you really feel called to do. You often have to express it in different parts of your life to really get that full picture. And would you be able to help that person be able to determine if they hate that job or, you know, to go from... Well, sure. You can help people with it because the truth is my job as a coach is never to tell someone what to do or tell them you know what the answer is my job is to help them draw out from themselves what it what the answers are so it, it's you know it's really more about asking questions than it is about making statements with coaching how do you get tell someone maybe not necessarily to get more done but to get the right things done yeah, that's one of the things that uh, when it comes to time, I think that's really important for people to understand is in, in today's world, we have a tendency to focus on getting more done and getting it done more quickly. So getting it done more quickly is efficiency, right? And getting more done is just now that I've got some efficiency, I'm just going to pile more on my plate <laughs> and get even more stuff done. But the truth is, a lot of what we do isn't actually important. It's not something that we should even be spending time on. And so we keep adding more to the plate. Stuff falls off the edges. We feel frustrated because we're not getting everything done. And the reality is our expectation, in part, is out of alignment with what we can get done, but we're not actually paying attention and doing any filtering on what's the most important stuff versus what isn't. So there's some exercises you can do with that. One of the one of the thought processes that I like people to learn is what's actually called the Eisenhower matrix. You've seen it if you've ever taken any material by Stephen Covey. You, you've seen it before, but you may not realize that it's called the Eisenhower matrix because it predates Stephen Covey. And this is the idea of if you you know you put a, a X and Y axis out there. And on one of them, you label important. And on the other, you label urgent. You end up with four possible combinations. So combination one is work that is urgent and important. So this is a project that you have to get done and it's due tomorrow. It, it's urgent because it's due tomorrow. It's important because this work project has to be done for the client. This is a deliverable. This is something that we're measured on. The next box is something that's urgent but not actually important. As an example of that, most email and most phone calls fall into that category. The truth is when your phone rings, what we usually do is the phone rings, we just instinctively grab it and answer the phone. You really need to think about, 
am I doing work right now where I don't need to be answering the phone? I, I can let that go to voicemail. I'll call them back in a little while. Same thing for emails. We have a tendency to keep our email box open. And then anytime that little number pops up, oh, let me go check the email real quick. And it interrupts our ability to do important work and actually focus on it and get it done more efficiently. The, the next two boxes, so we've got important and urgent. We've got urgent, but not important. You've, of course, got not urgent, but important. This is about doing things like long-term planning. This is about doing things that develop yourself. This is about doing things that actually add more skills and abilities to you. But we actually don't usually do a lot of that stuff because I call it the tyranny of the urgent. We have a tendency to only be focusing on the urgent stuff instead of focusing mainly on the important stuff. And of course, the last box is not urgent, not important. This is binging on Netflix. And sometimes we spend a lot of time in this box too, because somehow or another it feels, you know, oh, I've got to decompress, I've got to relax, I've got to get this done. But as you begin to go through your task and begin to identify what really are the things that move the needle? What are the things that really I should be doing? What are the things that I can, and I call it the D's, delegate, you know, or dump out of my life? What are the things that I just shouldn't be doing? Because oftentimes we say yes to things without actually thinking about everything you say yes to automatically means you had to say no to something else because you've only got 24 hours in the day. You can only get so much done. It's it's called opportunity cost. And just like you have that with money, you have that with time. And so instead of paying attention to that, we just keep piling more onto our plate. And so it's really about teaching people to think about what is it that they are doing, pay attention to it, actually measure it, actually focus on it, actually pay attention to it, and then begin to filter out by saying no to stuff that at the end of the day really doesn't matter and saying yes to the stuff that really does matter. And so as an example, what's the first thing you should put on your calendar? The stuff that's most important to you, which may be, for instance, spending time at your kid's soccer game. But instead, what ends up happening is we fill up our calendar with everything else and then we'd have no time for the kids' soccer game, and now we feel guilty about it. So it's it's really about doing those exercises to think about what is the most important stuff and then make sure you're taking care of that first. Right. That's, you know, that's a good, good way of saying that. How would someone determine or decide, you know, for themselves or get advice on whether or not they need to go to a coach? Or need you know need a coach in their life like you know like yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, I, th- I think everyone needs coaching at different points in their life from different people. Sometimes that coaching is a formal business relationship, hire a coach. Sometimes that coaching is just sitting down with a mentor or a friend and getting advice. That still kind of falls into that realm of coaching. It's just kind of unofficial coaching. So I do believe everyone needs coaching from time to time. But as far as do you need an actual, you know, formal coach in your life, a lot of it has to do with identifying where are your frustrations coming from. So as an example, I also think counseling is something that people need to think about. And counseling tends to be more focused on looking at the past so that we can unpack and decompress and re-examine that so that we can move forward more effectively. And I've put coaching in the category of, okay, now that you've done some of that work, 
let's look at what can we do to move forward more effectively. And maybe you don't need the counseling. Maybe you just need to look forward. Then you would be looking at a coach. Coaches tend to be action oriented. They tend to be helping people put something into action. You've got to be ready to take action. You've got to feel comfortable with the idea that things aren't perfect today, and I am going to be working on changing them to make them better. Because oftentimes, you know, if all you do, if, if you don't want to change anything, well, then coaching is not going to help you and it's not time for coaching because you're not ready for it yet. So it is about identifying, are you ready for change? Are you ready to do the hard work? Are you ready to actually take an active process so that you can begin to make changes that move you towards what you really want? The answer to that is yes then I would explore trying to find a coach that's a good fit for you. And as part of that, let me, you know, be crystal clear. I'm not the right coach for everybody, <laughs> you know, and I don't believe I should be. I don't believe I can be. I, I don't even want to be. So it's, this isn't a me pitching me and saying, Hey, go hire me. But at that case, if you're really ready for that change, you do seem to start looking around and saying, is there a coach that I fit with that has similar values, has a similar philosophy, has a similar mindset? I feel comfortable with them. I would feel comfortable with them challenging me and asking me difficult questions. I, I can trust them. And then when you find that person, that's the coach that you need to be working with. Gotcha. Now, going to a financial question here, there's a lot of people, you know, in the United States that are in debt. How do you tell them to get out of debt? You know, like, what is the easiest way for them to get out of debt? The first thing that they have to realize is it's not there's no easy way. Uh, generally, people don't get into debt suddenly. For the most people, they get into debt debt by, you know, death by a thousand cuts. It's, it's all about the little things. It's overspending a little bit here, overspending a little bit there. You know, yes, every once in a while someone gets into debt because of like a medical situation or something like that, that creates a large debt, a massive debt in one fell swoop, but that tends to be less common. And so it's recognizing that what causes the debt fundamentally is that you are deciding to leverage future income for pre present activity. In other words, I want it now, but I don't have the money today, so I'm going to pay this money with future income. That's really all debt is, is you're promising future income for activity today, something that you purchase today. When you begin to realize that, you can recognize that you've got to change that belief. You've got to change the idea that it's okay to leverage future income for activity today. If, if you've decided that that's no longer true for you, now you can begin to change the behavior and actually, quote, live on less than you make. And the truth is, if you do that and you do something smart with the difference over a long enough period of time, you become financially independent. Then you don't have to worry about it anymore. So this isn't about, quote, saying, you know, all debt is bad or that there's never a reason that you've gotten into debt or that, you know, if you're in debt, you're somehow an evil person or anything like that. It's really about identifying, is this something that you want to do? Once you've decided it isn't, then what are the changes we need to make in our behavior and our mindset and our philosophy so that over time 
we get out of debt. So I'm not a big proponent of, you know, cut everything and live in a cave and only come out on triple coupon Tuesdays and this kind of things because it doesn't last. You know, it's like a crash diet. It doesn't work. Instead, it's about making those fundamental changes and then changing that over time so that you get to where you want to go. Right. What does the acronym DISC mean? So DISC is actually a personality, uh, a personality activity that you can do. It was invented uh, a long time ago by a gentleman by the name of Marsden. The philosophy behind it is at that time, everyone was looking at abnormal psychology. And he said, I actually want to go look at normal people, air quotes around the word normal and figure out how do they view the world. And so what he basically came up with is this, and, and play along with me here, Dorsey, because you, you can actually kind of go through it. He said, at the end of the day, most people either view the world more from a task lens or from a people lens. And let me translate that. In other words, some people think when I give them a job, the first thing they think is, oh, what do I need to do? Let me break that down into the steps. Let me think about the task. Let me think about you know the outcomes. What is this going to look like? Other people, if you give them something to achieve, they immediately begin thinking about who are the people I need? Who do I need to recruit to this? What do I need to, to pull in from other people and skills and resource? Or who am I going to get to work with? So would you agree that most people either you know, at a at a broad generalization, kind of think about the world from a task point of view or from a people point of view. I don't say they think of the world as a task point of view. Well, and I'm not asking what do you think most people do, but do would you agree that you can put people into those two buckets? Oh, absolutely. Okay, and and if you do that for yourself, do you have a tendency to think more about task or about people? I would probably say task. Okay, perfect. And by the way, there's no value judgment to this. There's no good or bad. There's no right or wrong. It's not that if you think about people per first, you're a good person or a bad person. If you think about tasks first, you're a good person or a bad person. And it's not about labeling people and putting them in, you know, kind of labels either. It's about identifying how people view the world so that if I understand how you view the world, I can exhibit the platinum rule. So, you know, the golden rule, of course, is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Treat other people the way you want to be treated. The platinum rule is treat other people the way they want to be treated. And so if I need, if I want to treat other people the way they want to be treated, first, I have to understand how do they want to be treated? So by you telling me you're more task oriented, I know if I want to communicate well with you, I need to operate through the lens of communicating about the task, right? I need to talk about the to-dos. I need to talk about the outcomes. I need to talk about the results. I don't need to tell you, here's the seven people you're going to be working with. Not as the first thing. I may tell you that later, but the first thing you're going to have, you know, want to know if I'm communicating with you is through the task. So I can communicate with you better by knowing kind of how do you view the world. So there's another filter. So task versus people. The other filter is what we would call outgoing or reserved. Now, let me clarify. That doesn't mean introvert and extrovert. Everyone always hears outgoing and immediately thinks extrovert. Not necessarily. You can actually be an outgoing introvert and you can be a reserved extrovert. It is possible. So outgoing and reserved really have more to do with kind of how does your energy run? How does your internal body sort of 
run out into the world? Are you a high energy person that kind of gets up in the morning and man, it's like, boom, ah, you know, I am out there. I am high energy. I talk fast. I talk a lot. I'm very active. Or are you a more reserved person? So you kind of want to sit back, see how things are going, read the room, you know, kind of let your energy go, you know, and you're slow and steady kind of wins the race kind of person. You you talk a little slower. You're not quite as as quick to make a decision. You process a little slower. So you, when somebody asks you a question, you want to think about it first and then you'll answer or outgoing, you know, you'll kind of process out loud. You'll just answer as you go and, and keep going until you get to the answer. So would you say, again, is it fair first to put people into those kind of, some people are outgoing, some people are reserved sort of classification? Yeah, I think, um, I think that would be fair. And where would you put yourself, outgoing or reserved? I would probably say reserved. Okay. So you've said that you are a task-oriented, reserved person. So now, I, let me kind of draw back a minute. Again, if you can put people in task and people and outgoing and reserved, just like we were talking about the Eisenhower matrix, that gives us kind of four categories. Those four categories are labeled D, I, S, and C in this model. Now, it's really more complicated than that. You don't have, you're usually not just one of these buckets. I've really dramatically oversimplified this process. You're usually a blend of at least two, if not three of these. But very quickly, let me kind of go through what the big buckets are and then recognize, again, if this is something we can dig into more deeply, you can take assessments, you can find it out you know, in more detail because you're really not going to just fit into one of these buckets. So when I describe it, you're going to go, well, I've got some of that, but I'm mainly this, you know, and that's okay. That's normal. That's actually correct. So the D are the task-oriented, outgoing people. These are your results-oriented people that are really all about getting it done. They're the high drivers. They're very dominant. They tend to be very direct. They're out there in your face. We all know those folks, okay? That's usually about 10% of the general population. But like, for instance, if I walk into a room full of entrepreneurs, a lot of Ds in the room, okay? Because they're out there getting stuff done, you know, taking names, kicking butt, chewing bubble gum. At the end of the day, though, they also occasionally kind of, quote, leave bodies in their wake. These are the folks that aren't always real thinking about other people and the impacts of their decisions. That's not because they're bad people. It's just because they're so focused on the result and they don't always think about the people. So they have to learn to do that other. So that's the D, right? The dominant driver kind of person. The I stands for inspirational. So these are outgoing, people-oriented people. These are the folks that are the life of the party. We love these folks. They stand out. They're energetic. They're, they're fun to be around. They're high energy, and they're really about connecting with other people. Okay? Again, inspirational folks we know. Remember, none of these are good or bad. They all have strengths. They all have weaknesses. Inspirational folks are awesome and fun to be around, but they also sometimes have a hard time focusing on, you know, quote, getting work done or actually doing things that kind of need to be done. They, they have a tendency to put off things that they don't want to do 
And so they have to be aware of the fact that because they're so people oriented and outgoing, sometimes they've got to slow down. They've got to get something done, even something that they don't want to. So that's kind of, we've covered the top of the bucket, the outgoing task and people. That's the D, that's the I. We'll go to the S and the C. But before I go there, it, it sounded like you might have been about to ask a question. So I want to give you give you space to do that. No, you can keep going on. I'll ask you after you know we're done here. Okay, perfect. So the S going down, the S is actually the most common category. The S has the most people in it. Like if you're walking around on the street and you had to guess, you probably are talking to an S. Okay. These are supporters. These folks are some of the nicest people on the planet. They're nurturers. They care about other people. They tend to be people-oriented and reserved. They don't like conflict. They like calm. They like the status quo. They like it to be collected and everything to be okay. Peace and harmony are kind of their their love languages, you know, what they love out of the world. Unfortunately, S's can also be taken advantage of sometimes, okay? Because what happens to them is because they're so nurturing, because they're so focused on taking care of everybody else, if they're around someone that wants to, that person can take advantage of that, and then they end up saying yes to things that they really shouldn't say yes to. And so supporters have to be really careful about being overly accommodating and saying yes to too many things. So the last category, so that's D-I-S. Now let's do C, which, by the way, is the bucket that you put yourself in. A C is the cautious type. They tend to be detail-oriented. They're driven by getting things right. They like perfection. They like things to be followed, you know, follow the rules, get everything done, do everything, quote, the right way. They'll take a long time to do task, okay, because they want it to be right. They want it to be perfect. So, again, these are the task-oriented but reserved people, and they tend to be the, the cautious type. They tend to take a little bit more time to plan. They take a little bit more time to get it done. They tend to do everything once and check it three times. You know, That's their kind of personality and how they view the world, and they are motivated by getting it right. So we've got these kind of four big buckets. But again, remember, you're probably not in one of these buckets. You know, you kind of put yourself mainly in the C category, but odds are good as I kind of described the other things. You heard at least one more, maybe even two, where you're like, well, I've got some of that in me too. And that's really the truth. Most of us are a blend of at least two, if not three of these. So it's not as simplistic as just four buckets. But that's what DISC is and kind of how it stands. And like you said, you know, I when you were talking about supporters as well, you know, I just see myself in that that sometimes I give, you know, to I give myself to too much or, you know, uh, many people and I'm like, you know, they almost like take advantage of me type, you know, type situation. If that makes sure. sense. And odds are really good. You've got a really high S component as well as the, the kind of C component. So you're what we would call in disc parlance a CS or an SC. Not sure of which one is, quote, more dominant. And we could dig into it and keep going and probably figure it out. But you're you're one of those kind of blends. And, and what that means, and again, none of these are a value judgment. None of these are good or bad. That, but that does mean that as I talk to you, knowing this now, what I would want to do is make sure, because see, I'm an outgoing person. I'm a high energy person. You probably have picked up on that already. And 
what, so when I'm talking to you, I need to talk a little slower, talk a little calmer, give you a little bit more time to process, not because there's anything wrong, but that's because it's more comfortable to you. It would make you more receptive. Right. And so, you know, I need to know this about you so that I can communicate with you better. And so that you could communicate with me better. And so that's kind of how that process works. And how do we use this to lead others well or lead others better way? Sure. So it's it's all about knowing who they are so that, that they will know that you care. You know, the, the John Maxwell quote is people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I've also heard that as uh, given and said, you know, there's 50 other people that have said it. So I'm not really sure who said it first. But regardless, I heard it first from John Maxwell. So that's who I'm going to say it was from. It's about realizing that we need to understand other people so that we can actually care about them. So this isn't about manipulating people. This isn't about using this to make them do what you want. It's about understanding how people are wired so that as we come to them, we can give them what they need so that they can operate in their best place. They can operate from their authentic self. So if somebody's, you know, a C, I'm, I'm, I know that they're going to ask a lot of questions and they're not going to need a lot of details. So when they start asking questions and needing details, why would I get mad at them? <laughs> you know, and yet what tends to happen is their boss maybe is a high D and their boss is like, Oh, why do you keep asking me all these details? Just go get it done. But if they understand that they're operating from their authentic self, they're operating from this idea of perfection. They want to get it right. Their best way of getting their results is to give them the data and the information so that they can understand it. Well, then I'm not frustrated with them anymore for asking questions. In fact, I can preface it and I can say, hey, you know, Dorsey, I know you probably got some questions. I kind of just gave you the, the task that you need to get done, but you probably got a few questions. What are those? You know, ask me your questions. I can actually let the person express themselves and the person now feels valued. Why? Because they are valued, <laughs> you know? So one of the things I used to do when I had a team is I figured out who are my S's, who are my supporters. And then I put an event on my calendar once a week to get up from my desk, leave my office and go visit with these people for a few minutes. When I say visit with them, I just mean visit with them. I don't mean talk to them about work. I mean, talk to them about their kids, talk to them about you know their, their spouse, talk to them about the baseball game last weekend, talk to them about whatever. You know, the, I figured out what was what was important to them. And then I went to them and I asked them about those things. Because at the end of the day, I wanted them to know I cared about them because it was important to them to know that I cared. What you know what ended up happening? By the way, I told these folks, this is an event on my calendar because remember, I'm task oriented. I'm, I'm a task oriented person. I had to turn caring for my people into a task. That's how it was meaningful to me. But what was meaningful to them is I stopped by and I talked to them and I actually knew their wife and knew their kid and knew their spouse's name and you know husband or wife, whoever it was, you know, knew what was going on in their life. Man, they they loved that. It made them feel important because I was actually speaking to them in their language. I was talking to them in a way that was authentic to them. I'll tell you the truth. It was uncomfortable to me. I, you know, it's not how I look at the world. But I can do it because I knew it was important to them. And so this is really about learning this from the point of view of how can I learn about other people so that I can treat them the way they want to be treated because that makes them feel happier and more connected and more in alignment. 
and they're going to be a you know get to have a better relationship with each other. So it's not about manipulating people into doing things as much as it about valuing people so that they want to do those things. Right. I think in our own life, you know, when it comes to time, we feel like time sometimes gets away from us. And, you know, especially during the day, you know, we wake up, you know, seven o'clock in the morning and the next thing we know it's lunch time. And then the next thing we know it's dinner time. And sometimes we don't feel like we got much done during the day. So how do we find the time to do the things that are most important to us? So one of the activities that I, I have people do, and this is something that literally anyone can do this, it, it, it takes very little prep. Uh, all you need is some way of having a timer that goes off every 15 or 30 minutes. You can do this in what I call a 15-minute miracle, or you can do it in a 30-minute miracle, either one. So let's say we're going to do 30 minutes. So take a piece of paper and write down on the piece of paper every 30-minute increment in a 24-hour day, right? So start at midnight, then put 1230, then put 1 a.m., then put 130, then put so on, right? All the way down. And then across the top, just write Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then set a silent alarm on your phone or on your Fitbit or your watch or whatever that will vibrate and go off every 30 minutes. So every 30 minutes when it goes off, take a couple of seconds and on that sheet of paper, and you can do this electronically, you can do this physically, it doesn't matter, just pick one. Write down, what did I do the last 30 minutes? And this doesn't mean write a 17-page paragraph about what you did. It just means capture the last few things you did. So for instance, you know there's going to be a big block where what it says next to it is sleep. I'm not suggesting you set an alarm every 30 minutes, wake up and write, I was sleeping. <laughs> just you know, write sleeping for that big block, okay? And then when you get up, though, start doing this every 30 minutes. So first thing I did, you know, kind of got ready for the day. Well, maybe that took an hour. Put that down. Then the next thing, you know, oh, I was checking Facebook for a while. Great. Check Facebook, you know. And then, uh, well, then I actually got to work and I turned on my email and it took me two hours to get through emails. Okay. Write that down. Yeah. You know, what do you do during the day? Worked on project. Okay. Worked on project, you know, and because what you're going to discover is some of those blocks, you're going to want to write down like two or three things because it was worked on project. Oop, checked email. Oop, checked Facebook. Oop, checked Twitter. Oh, then went back to the project. Okay. So write all of those things down. And if you do this for about a week, you'll start noticing patterns. You'll start noticing how much time you really spend on things. Because the truth is most of us have no clue how much time or money we spend on different things. This does the same thing happens with our budgets, with our money. We have no idea how much we spend on eating out because we never actually stopped and looked at it. So this is about stopping and looking at how you're spending your time. Because as you do that, you're going to notice that you probably in one way have way more time than you thought you did. And in another have way less. And what I mean by that is the way more is you're going to discover things that you're doing that fall into that, you know, urgent but not important or not urgent, not important categories that really and truly you could probably get out of your life and would never even miss it. And these are the things you want to get rid of. You want to either delegate or dump, get out of your life. And then you're also going to discover some things where you're doing things, but you're doing them in a very inefficient way. It's taking you three hours to do something that realistically you should be able to get knocked out in like 20 minutes or 30 minutes. But it's kind of 
wasted time because, for instance, what you're doing instead of focusing on the task at hand is you're actually bouncing between multiple tasks. You're, quote, multitasking, which is really inefficient, and you end up not getting anything done or not getting as much done because your brain has to keep switching tasks, and that's a really bad way from our brain. Our brains are not designed to work that way. Our brains are designed to do one thing at a time. And so you you start discovering these patterns of where things are going wrong. As you do that, then you can begin to inject the tools or the processes or the routines or the habits or the whatever to change that and make it improve. And you're really looking at just 1% improvement, get 1% better each and every day. If you do that for a full year, you'd be amazed at how much your time will change and you'll be getting the right things done. Yeah, you know, like you said, you know, how much time we're spending, you know, we could do, probably do that and find out, you know, we're spending two or three hours just on Facebook or just on Instagram or playing video games. Right. Yeah, most people, uh, you know, you, you're sleeping as seven to eight hours a night, right? You take that out and because we have 168 hours in a week, you know, 24 hours in a day, seven days a week, that's 168. And you spend a certain percentage of that sleeping. And then you spend a certain percentage on things that you, you really want to put on your calendar and you can't get off, you know, whatever these things are. That could be quote work meetings. That could be other things. Cause the other thing that happens is we tend to build a to-do list either on paper or in our head of these are the 72 things I want to get done tomorrow. But then when you actually look at your calendar and look at how much time you have available to get them done after you block off sleeping time and after you block off meetings and you block off lunchtime and you block off the is like an hour and 14 minutes. It's like, so realistically, how did you think you were going to get all 72 things of these done in an hour and 14 minutes? It's not physically possible. So some of it too is about aligning what our expectations are more realistically with the time that we actually have available. And then, of course, it's also changing the time we have available by figuring out what are the things I'm putting on my calendar and block, you know, and spending time on that maybe I shouldn't be. So it's it's kind of a twofold process to get to the place that you really want to be. Right. Well, thank you so much for, you know, coming on the show today. I greatly appreciate it. And, you know, if there was someone that wanted to find out more about you, where would they find out more about you? Absolutely. They can always check out my website. That's kind of where everything is. I actually put a page together just specially for your listeners. So if you go to inspiredstewardship.com slash Ross, you will find a special page. It's got some downloadables, some free resources. So if you're working on your time, it's got some of those resources I was talking about. If you want to learn more about disc, you can look at the talent section. If you want to look learn more about money and kind of dealing with your money, you can look at the finance section. All three of those are available on that page. Plus, there's actually a little link down at the bottom where if you want to set up a 30-minute chat, if something I said resonated with you and you just want to ask a follow-up question, set up a 30-minute time and I'd love to chat to you about coaching, what that looks like, uh, answer any questions you have, and go forward from there. And again, right. that's inspiredstewardship.com slash Ross. Well, thank you again for coming on and, uh, you know, we greatly appreciate you um, having you. Absolutely. It was an honor to be here. I hope that was of value to you and your listeners. And I look forward to hearing the episode when it comes out and, and sharing it out with everyone as well. Definitely. Well, guys, thank you again for joining us on another episode of the Joshua Ministry. Have a great day. Until next time. 
Thank you again for joining Dorsey Ross on this episode of The Dorsey Ross Show. Please like, share, and tell others about the show. Also, please check out the other podcast episodes. And if you would like, donate to this podcast and buy Dorsey a coffee. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.